am Oz the Great and Terrible. Why do you seek me? They looked again in every part of the room, and then, seeing no one, Dorothy asked, Where are you? I am everywhere, but to the eyes of the common mortals I am invisible. I will now seat myself upon my throne that you may converse with me. We have come to claim our promise, O Oz. What promise? You promised to send me back to Kansas when the Wicked Witch was destroyed. And you promised to give me brains, said the Scarecrow. And you promised to give me a heart, said the Tin Woodman. And y'all promised to give me courage, said the Southern Lion. Dear me, how sudden. Well, come to me tomorrow, for I must have time to think it over. You've had plenty of time already. We shan't wait a day longer. You must keep our promises to us. The lion thought it might be as well to frighten the wizard, so he gave a large, loud roar, which was so fierce and dreadful that Toto jumped away from him in alarm and tipped over the screen that stood in a corner. As it fell with a crash, they looked that way, and the next moment all of them were filled with wonder, for they saw, standing in just the spot the screen had hidden, a little old man with a bald head and a wrinkled face who seemed to be as much surprised as they were. Our friends looked at him in surprise and dismay. I thought the Oz was a great head, and I thought the Oz was a lovely lady, and I thought the Oz was a courageous Bernanke, and I thought the Oz was the green span put. No, no, you're all wrong, said the little man meekly. I have been making believe. Making believe? Are you not a great wizard? <laughs> Hush, my dear. Don't speak so loud, or you'll be overheard and I should be ruined. I'm supposed to be a great wizard. And aren't you? Not a bit, my dear. I'm just a common man. My dear friends, I pray you not to speak of these little things. Think of me and the terrible trouble I'm in at being found out. No one knows it but you four and myself. I have fooled everyone so long that I thought I should never be found out. But I don't understand, said Dorothy in bewilderment. How was it that you appeared to me as a great head? Hmm, that was one of my tricks. Step this way, please, and I will tell you all about it. Hello, everyone. In today's show, we're going to address three things. We're going to look at the Federal Reserve's new policy announcement. We're going to address it from two perspectives, inflation and employment. And then the third part of the show, we'll look at whether or not there are too many treasuries in the system, in the market. All of this is to help you understand how the wholesale creation, destruction of money affects your finances, your economy, our politics, our society. This is Making Sense. It's a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I am very happy to be joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Good morning, Emil. Good. How about yourself? I'm doing great. Uh, this week, it was as if the biggest summer blockbuster was opening for Fintwit. Everyone was a Twitter about the announcement coming out of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Were they even in Jackson Hole, Wyoming? I don't know, because it was all via teleconference. 
the Federal Reserve announced something big. At least they say it's big. And maybe it is. I don't know. Jeff, let's start at the beginning. Where, what, are, what are central bankers trying to do? Well, you know, they did, I mean, they're making a big deal out of this, certainly, because they want you to know that they put a lot of time and effort into this. This was a grand strategy review. I mean, this is a big deal as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned, and they're making it a big deal. And remember, you know, Jay Powell first announced this way back in November of 2018. He said, we're going to do, we're going to rethink everything from the ground up. And then they went on to conduct, I think it was 15, what they called Fed Listens events, where they went into the community. They talked to business leaders, union leaders, workers, employers, all parts of the economy, politicians, everybody. Then after that, in June of 2019, they held this massive conference where they submit, where they got submissions of all these academic research papers from all the right academic economists that you've maybe heard of. And they had a lineup of really impressive speakers to talk about all these major things about what the Fed needs to do differently. And then the, the, the month after that, July of 2019, they got together, they put together these five working groups of these massive teams of analytical researchers who crunched all the numbers, went through all the data to make sure that no stone was left unturned so that when the FOMC and Jay Powell finally put this grand strategy together, there was absolutely nothing wrong. I mean, it was perfectly, it was the best policy that, any, that money could buy, and the best thing that the Federal Reserve could ever do. Jeff, I knew that they were working on something big, but I never heard about these 15 Fed meets or the five policy groups or the big conference, and it never came across anything I saw on Twitter, nothing I heard on Real Vision, Nothing on macro voices or in hedge eye. I'm sure you heard about it, but I don't think they reached out to people that might offer different points of view. Do you know what I mean? It, it seems like they made yeah. a lot of effort, and yet I never heard about it. Is that a coincidence? Did they like invite you? Anyone that you know of? Did anyone get invited? No, and I think, you know, again, with the point of point of perspective here is what they're trying to accomplish is, is sort of an after the fact, hey, we did all this stuff, so, you know, we know what we're doing. It's really about presenting a optics, right? It wasn't about putting together a actual plan. It was about making the plan that they knew they were going to, you know, they had reached their conclusions ahead of time and then making it seem like it was, oh, it was huge, it was weighty, it's substantial. We put a lot of time and effort into it. We didn't, we, you know, we didn't go out into the, to the wider marketplace and talk to our skeptics and critics. Of course not. We would never do that. But they don't want you to know. They just want you to know that this is a grand strategy review. It's been in the works for almost two years, an exhaustive search. All the archives, all the data, all the research, all the, everything. We left, every, you know, they want the public to be reassured that this was some very large, substantial undertaking and that the product of that undertaking, therefore, is of the most unassailable, best kind of new program. Well, let me read what the front page Bloomberg headline was yesterday, August 27th, because many people in our audience are not economists. And because of that, they lead very happy lives. So they may not be aware of just exactly what happened. So what did Bloomberg say? Quote, the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell unveiled a new approach to setting U.S. monetary policy letting inflation and employment run higher in a shift that will likely keep interest rates low for years to come. 
Following a more than year-long review, Powell said Thursday that the Fed will seek inflation that averages 2% over time, a step that implies allowing for price pressures to overshoot after periods of weakness. It also adjusted its view of full employment to permit labor market gains to reach more workers. Now, we're going to split up our episode here into two parts. We're going to address the inflation part first, then the employment, uh, which doesn't get as much attention, at least on Twitter that I saw, didn't get as much attention. And Jeff, you responded to this article, and that article was called, quote, this has to be a joke, because if it's not, Jeff, why, why is it a joke? Yeah, well, let's, before we get into the, you know, the nuts and bolts and the nuances of the Fed's, Fed's new policy, why don't we back up to the very beginning? As, as, you, as you were alluding to in the beginning of our pro- podcast here, Emil, let's, let's, let's approach this from their perspective. What is, that, what is their guiding principles? Why are they doing these kinds of things? And I think if we explain what they're thinking, people might better understand what, what's going on and why they're going through these exercises. And it all goes back to 1999. And it actually a paper, a very influential paper written by Paul Krugman, of all people, who looked at the Japanese situation, their lost decade, they're, they're mired in, in deflation, mired in, in a decade of, you know, that had brought interest rates down to zero. They had met, they had met the zero lower bound in February of 1999. And so what is it that they needed to do from that, from that um, situation to get themselves out and back into a, an actual economic recovery and growth and that kind of a uh, situation again? What Krugman said is that the central bank comes into it after the federal government has done a bunch of stuff and created all the stimulus and started moving things in the right direction. The central bank's role is to crack the deflationary mindset, to credibly promise to be irresponsible. Now, that's the phrase that people need to keep in mind whenever they're thinking about the Federal Reserve or the ECB or the Bank of Japan, any central bank in the QE zero lower bound era. They need to think about the phrase credibly promise to be irresponsible. Because that's exactly what's going on. That's the guiding principle behind all of these monetary policies. Now, it doesn't actually mean what it may sound like it means. The irresponsible part, I think people understand. It's intuitive, right? That's the money printing. That's the accommodation, printing money, being irresponsible, you know, letting the printer go nuts, right? That's QE and unlimited QEs, these kinds of things. But that's not actually what Krugman was saying. That's the first part of it. We need the central banks to be irresponsible. But because the modern central bank is an inflation-fighting instrument, the post-Volkler era, post-great inflation, everybody knows the Fed and all the central banks around the world have made a big deal about how their, their overriding principle is to be inflation fighters. So therefore, what Krugman said was, you can promise to be irresponsible and do all this money printing, but everybody knows that you're not really, you're not really going to do it. You might be irresponsible in the short run, but because central banks are inflation fighters, they're eventually going to come in and, 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 and uh, get control over the inflationary situation pretty quickly as soon as before it ever gets out of hand because they're an inflation fighting instrument. So what he was saying incredibly promised to be irresponsible was that you have to make the market believe that you're just going to be irresponsible over the long run. You're going to start money printing, and then you're just going to let it go. You're not going to be your inflation-fighting self that you've been for decades by that point. And so that's what he was saying is that you have, to, you have to essentially fool the market into believing that you're going to create inflation and then let it go 
because that's the only way to get the market to act in the way that you want because the market being forward looking is always thinking, okay, somebody's going to take away the punch bowl at some point. And what Krugman was saying, credibly promised to be irresponsible, is the central bank has to say, nah, we're never going to take away the punch bowl. We're going to let this thing go as far as it will. And when you understand that phrase and what's going on, you can start to see what just happened in Jackson Hole. And so this is a big event, and you actually wrote two articles. The first one I mentioned is at Alhambra Investment. This has to be a joke because if it's not, but the second one you wrote posted today, August 28th, at Real Clear Markets, the world's on fire because growth never was. And in that article, you fast forward us about six years because I don't know if the Bank of Japan actually listened to Krugman, but effectively, they introduced two policies that were credibly and irresponsible, I guess, uh, zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing. This is the first ones that were introduced in modern times. And in April 2005, the BOJ, Bank of Japan, published a working paper reviewing six years of credible irresponsibility and zero interest rate policy, four years of quantitative easing. What did the paper conclude regarding the effectiveness of those policies? That they were not effective. <laughs> well, look, quantitative easing is supposed to work through two different channels. One of the channels is what we just talked about, the quote-unquote money printing, where people say handing out free money in combination with zero interest rate policies. So we're going to hand out free money, and banks are just going to do a bunch of stuff with that free money. And the other effect is the portfolio rebalancing channel, whereby we're buying bonds from banks, and if we're taking bonds out of their hands and they got to make money, they're going to go out and lend and do risk by risky securities and do all the things we need them to do in the real economy because we've we've removed all the safe assets from their hands. And what the Bank of Japan found in 2005 was neither of those things actually really happened. And then, of course, that left only ZERP to try to explain some kind of positive uh, positive effect from any of this monetary policy. And the only way they attributed that to the Bank of Japan was in uh, through the JGB market falling yields which we know for a fact that falling yields are not have nothing to do with ZERP. They have everything to do with the, the, the uh, central bank and monetary policy is not working. And so then what happened? The great financial crisis took place and the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world repeated what Japan did. I guess we could have told them, well, if Japan wasn't successful, you weren't going to be successful. But the other central banks said, well, Japan did it wrong. We're going to do it louder one louder and it didn't well yeah really... that's, that's right i mean emil that's what we're talking about credibly promised to be irresponsible and so what happens every time they don't think that qe is flawed they don't think the zerp is flawed they think it's the credible part they're saying oh we weren't credible enough in our irresponsibility they never it's you know what they're saying is essentially they don't make a different promise they're making the same promise over and over and trying to make that same promise more credible that's what guides them in everything they do. That's why the QEs always get bigger. It's not like, hey, we're making the wrong promise here and the market's not believing us. They keep thinking, well, the promise is good. We just need to make it more and more credible. And that's exactly what happened yesterday at Jackson Hole. What, the, what Jay Powell said was, okay, we've, we've, been, we've been different credit. We made the same promise to be irresponsible. Now we're trying to make it even more credible by this average inflation target. And so that's what, you know, it doesn't matter how many times this stuff fails. They keep going back to, okay, we're going to make the same promise. But this time, this time, I promise, 
this, the same promise will be even more credible. It's always about more credible. And the funny thing is, they brought Paul Krugman in in 2013, 2012 and 2013, to advise the Bank of Japan on QQE. Because what was QQE? It was the continuation of the same thing. We're going to make the same promise to be irresponsible, but QQE makes it even more credible. Because look at this thing. It's freaking massive. It's, it's never been done. I mean, this, this is a monster of irresponsibility. And of course, as we know, they're on their eighth year of the same damn thing. Well, I think if we had Jay Powell with us, he would say they're not doing the same thing. In fact, they're doing something different than what they had announced a few couple of years earlier. So, Jeff, I have a question for you. What is the difference between a long-run average inflation target, which was announced in August 2020, and a medium-term inflation symmetry, which they announced in May 2018? There's no difference. <laughs> there really is not. Look, again, it's, 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 it's different language. It's different gloss. It's different, you know, putting a different spin on the same thing because it's all about how do we make our, our same promise more credible. And really, infl average inflation, symmetry, all of these things mean the same thing. What the Fed is saying is what I said at the beginning. They're promising they're going to set aside their, 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 their deeply seated um, inflation-fighting mandate, and they're just going to let things run. That's what they want you to believe, and they want you to know that we're not going to be inflation fighters because that's going to make our promise, the same promise we've been making, that's going to make it more credible because we're now saying we're not going to be inflation fighters. We're going to let those things go as if that's the problem. You see, that's the point here I think that they're missing and that a lot of people are missing is the issue is not the promise. The issue is not the credibility that they're, they're trying to enhance. It's to keep making the same promise, which the market knows, the bond market in particular knows, is horseshit. I mean, pardon my language, but that's really what's been proven here. After two decades of this stuff, time and time again, they keep trying to make the same promise more credible. It's time to stop and look. You guys don't know what you're doing. You can't create inflation. And so trying to make the same idea that you, you can't make inflation more credible, you just end up spinning your wheels and going nowhere and, and then get lost in this confusion about how can we make the same crappy promise more credible? Well, you can't. It's, it's, it's flawed from its very beginning. It's inherently wrong. And the more that you try to make it credible, the more time you're just going to waste. And the worse it's going to get along the way. Jeff, I was going to ask you, how would a central banker explain why their symmetry plan, right, an inflation symmetry, they said they were going to, it sounds, the way they described it in May 2018 sounds so similar to today. And I was going to ask you, well, how would they then explain all the things that went wrong since then, right? The sovereign bond shock on May 29th, the euro dollar futures curve inverting in June 2018, uh, the economy hitting the brakes in the autumn of 2018, all the trouble that we witnessed during 2019. I was going to ask you that, but I guess they would just say, well, now, yeah, that was one policy and now this one is different. Is, yeah, is this that one's weird? more credible, right? <laughs> we, okay. we already did symmetry, but the, you know, now we're, we've got all of this massive effort. Remember the 15 Fed listens, we've got the massive conference, we've got the five working groups. So yeah, I mean, the symmetry idea that we, had, we, that we did in May of 2018, maybe that didn't work, but we put a lot of work in since then. And the irony of it is, while they were doing all that work, their May 2018 symmetry plan was falling apart. Remember what was going on in 2019. 
was the exact opposite of what symmetry was supposed to represent. Symmetry was supposed to represent, remember, 2017, early 2018, globally synchronized growth. The economy is going to take off. The Fed, we're going to see inflation with it because the unemployment rate kept falling and falling and falling. Everything was great. And so what symmetry was in May 2018 was the continuation of those things. The Fed saying, as they're saying now, we're going to let inflation get out of control because we want you to be, we want you to know our promise to be responsible is that much more credible. And in fact, as they said symmetry, it was already falling apart. And while they did all of this, this other stuff behind the scenes to get ready for their 2020 grand strategy review, they had already undone their symmetry plan from 2018, which is essentially the same thing as averaging uh, inflation over the long run. And Jeff, all this talk about inflation, it sounds like it could be sadistic. We're in the middle of a recession slash depression, and the Federal Reserve here is trying to promise more inflation. It sounds sick, but I think what we're really talking about is they want to see the inflation that is generated by economic activity, by private banks extending credit, by businesses, private enterprise creating collateral. So they're throwing off more credit. They're throwing off more collateral. And therefore, we see this inflation of economic activity. And I think that's what they're pursuing. And you raise the point in your article that by admitting, they're admitting we were not able to create that over the last 10 or 11 years. We, it's not inflation that we're missing. We're missing economic activity. We never recovered. Yeah, exactly. The, the inflation they're talking about is, you know, though it is, can be painful, it's a byproduct of actual economic growth. At least that's the, their theory. They're, again, going back to the guiding principles. They're not trying to be reckless like the 1970s. They want you to believe that they're being reckless so that you start acting in the real economy as if inflation is a foregone conclusion. And if you act in the real economy as if the inflation is a foregone conclusion and that it's going to run hot for a while, you're going to start doing a bunch of things today, what John Maynard Keynes called pump priming. And as you do those things today in anticipation of inflation down the road, that gets the economy moving out of the doldrums. It gets it out of its rut and into the growth paradigm. And so what happens is inflation is a byproduct of actual economic growth, and that actual economic growth makes that inflation very palatable. In fact, you would, given the, the choices here, would you rather be stuck in a deflationary rut for year after year after year, or would you accept a bunch of inflation in order to get back into what is an actual economic growth and an actual economic boom? Most people would choose the second option. Now, the question is whether or not this is the way you get into a boom, and that's a whole separate discussion. But that's at least what the Federal Reserve is attempting to do, to use their inflationary shock powers to get the economy out of the rut. And what you're saying, Emil, is exactly right. Implicit in this entire document is an admission that, you know, the last 10 years we told you the economy is doing really good. Yeah, it wasn't. It, you know, all those things that we said about how great we were being, we weren't. We didn't do what we said we were going to do. Now, they don't come out and say it because they're a bunch of freaking cowards. But that's exactly what this document says, that everything that we told you over the last 10 years was, wasn't really true. The economy actually is stuck in a very bad place, and we're using our credibly promised to be irresponsible mantra to try to get us out of it now. Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. You can find him on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. I'm on Twitter as well, at Emil Kalinowski. 
Jeff, it's often said that the Federal Reserve has two mandates. One is uh, inflation and the other one is employment. A lot of the talk is about inflation, not very much focus. And in fact, I don't think I came across anyone talking about their changes to employment except for you. So let's talk about what you saw there. And again, for those of us joining the program midstream, we're referring to two articles. This has to be a joke because if it's not, that's at Alhambra Investments and the world's on fire because the growth never was. That's at Real Clear Markets. Jeff, employment. Yeah, well, I mean, not to be all sympathetic to, to the central bank, but they do actually have a dual mandate. And it's not that, I mean, that's, Congress has given them the dual mandate throughout their history. I mean, after the Great Depression, they were given an employment mandate to maximize employment. And during the Great Inflation, they were giving an inflation mandate, which, you know, as we mentioned in the last segment, the inflation mandate has been put, put, you know, placed in the public's uh, mind more toward the front and, and more into the center of how, how we believe the central bank actually operates. We're taught to, to think of the central bank as an inflation fighting mechanism and not a deflation fighting mechanism, which they're trying to try, which they're trying to struggle with and trying to, to get their hands around because we're in a deflationary environment. And that's what really all this stuff is. It's a, it's a tacit admission, an implicit admission after a, a long decade of lack of economic growth that, you know what? Yes, we have never really recovered from the Great Recession. And then we're in, we're stuck in this, you know, what they might call a disinflationary environment. And the way we have to get out of it is to go back to this idea of credibly promising to be irresponsible. And the other part of credibly promising irresponsible in creating this inflation shock is what it's supposed to do as a benefit to the labor market. I'm going to pull up an article. I'm going to pull up your article at Alhambra and you screenshotted I think it's their working document. It looks like a document with track changes all over it. You highlighted some things, you circled some things, and can you just walk us through what you're trying to draw our attention to? And with respect to employment, I would like to know what the definition or the meaning is of two words. The first one is deviations, and the second one is shortfall. It's actually, you know, Emil, it's actually not the working document. It's a finished product. What they're doing is they're showing you how it's changed from its last incarnation. And so they're telling you all the things that we took out, all the things that we added, all the things that we changed, you know, the language that was, it was reworded, all these kinds of things. What I'm showing you here, what you're, what we're, what you're showing us here on the screen is the section that's get, and actually it goes into number three too, but uh, it's the section about employment, the employment part of the mandate, not just the inflation part, but the employment part of the mandate. And previously, what they had said was that monetary policy would take into account deviations from what they believe is maximum, the maximum level. The maximum level is what we colloquially call full employment. So deviations means plural. There are more than one kind of deviation. There's obviously one kind, which is where we don't have enough employment, and therefore the unemployment rate's too high. But there's also this other kind of deviation where the unemployment can be, I know it's hard to believe, but the unemployment can be too low. That's the deviation in the opposite direction. And that's the deviation, by the way, that the, that the, the Federal Reserve has been operating, uh, uh, the assumption that they have been making since about 2015. So for the last half a decade, they've, saw, they've seen the, the unemployment rate fall lower and lower and lower and have judged because they thought the economy had recovered 
because they, they, the lower the unemployment rate went, the more they thought that, that this must be an inflationary beyond full employment situation that requires a monetary policy response. That's where forward guidance and all these other things came into play because people were expecting, they were expecting the unemployment rate to lead to inflation, which then would corroborate the idea that the economy had recovered. Now, as you can see on the screen, they've stricken out these deviations and added only shortfalls to it. And what they're really saying is, you know, we got fooled by the unemployment rate for a very long time, waiting for inflation to happen that never happened. Therefore, we need to be careful now about following the unemployment rate blindly because we only want to be interested in the situations where there can be shortfalls of employment. And that gets into, I mean, there's a, there's a bigger discussion here about, you know, our star potential full employment, all these other things, slack output gap, all of these, all these other facets of what really is a kind of a, you know, a, a weird situation where again, for a very long time, they let the unemployment guide their view of the economy and how they describe the economy to you and me and everybody else. And now they're saying, you know, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do. We followed the wrong rate and it was never corroborated. And we made monetary policy mistakes based on this other deviation we've now stricken from the record. We're stricken from the strategy document. It's, it's now we only care about shortfalls. Jeff, this may be the first time that you are underplaying a mistake or an error by the central bank because I think this is damning. For those of you that are joining us mid-depression, and you may have missed the last few years, the central bank would trot out the unemployment rate out there and wave it as if they had captured a flag of the enemy on the battlefield. And they were waving it and they said, unemployment, nothing you could say that they might be doing wrong could, could dissuade them from saying, no, no, this unemployment flag, it explains everything. Everything is going well because of the unemployment rate. And now they've dropped that flag as if it was some sort of used tissue. Uh, I think this is pretty damning about the last 11 years, that that economic recovery was never there, just like how we were talking about with inflation in the first part of our show. Yeah, that's implicit in all of these things. And I think you're right. I, you know, Maybe I am downplaying it a lot, but this is really a big deal because one of, you know, one of, it was the, you know, one of the few mainstream economic accounts that actually made it seem like the economy had recovered. And it was, you know, it was, it was weird in the way because it kept going below what they thought was full employment. And therefore that should have been a signal during the, during the time that this happened that something wasn't right. But yet, as you're, you're right, Emil, they kept, they kept trotting that thing out time and time again, whenever there was any kind of criticism, whenever, whenever there was any kind of doubt in the marketplace about, you know, whether things were progressing the way they should be, they would say, no, the unemployment, full, we're, you know, we're beyond full employment. This is inflationary full employment. This is a deviation from the maximum in the good direction that, that, that basically says everything that we said about the last 10 years must be true. The unemployment rate is the thing that shows that we've been successful. And what has happened, because it, I mean, the evidence was overwhelming beyond the unemployment rate, everything was damning. It said, no, this, this, this unemployment rate is being moved by something that's not in, within it. The participation problem, the denominator was not big enough. It didn't capture the entire economy and the slack and lack of recovery that was remaining from 2010 or 2009, 2008. And so the, the Federal Reserve has finally said, you know what? 
yeah, that was true. We we held on to the unemployment rate like it was like it was everything. That was the whole thing. That was the everything that we had been saying and everything that we had been doing for a very long time was wrapped up in this one thing. And they held on to it like it was sacred and holy. Except now they you know the the evidence has been overwhelming to say you were wrong to do that. And here in their document, they're they're basically admitting we were wrong to do that. The unemployment rate fooled us, and it, it created problems not just for monetary policy. This is the part they don't say. It created problems for monetary policy, which is why they're changing the strategy document. But the, the more important thing is what did that mean in the real economy, in the real world? What it meant was that we had a decade where growth was not what everybody was told it was. The unemployment rate was a wrong, it was a skewed picture of the situation, and that now you can start to understand why we have so many big political, social, and all these other kinds of problems all over the place, not just here, but around the rest of the world. That because, because of the last decade, the way things actually have gone, they haven't gone really well. And you can't go that long without economic growth, real actual economic growth, and expect it to turn out any other way. Jeff, uh, I have just a couple of points left. I want to go back to that strategy document. Uh, and there's that section number four. And I want to read the very first line off that document there. And it, here's what it reads. It's, it's chutzpah. I can't believe it. Quote, the inflation rate over the long run is primarily determined by monetary policy. Wow. Uh, I know I'm being melodramatic here, Jeff, but, uh, you know, a few years ago, we would have uh, heard something similar uh, where the climate or the weather is primarily determined by the dance of the shaman or the path of the sun is primarily determined by, over the long run, it's it's uh, rotation around the earth. It's just totally backwards. And this strategy document has no hope of working if one of the most important lines, the very opening line of that uh, paragraph says, we determine the inflation rate. If you have, well, if yeah, you have any- That's a good point too. But remember what they're saying here, what's, what they're believing. And you're, you're exactly right to equate it to, you know, you know primitive understanding and, uh, you know, what I called it, you know, or what Plato called the parable of the cave, you know, what they're saying here is nothing more than, you know, they're restating what is actually a truth. What Milton Friedman always said, what most people actually believe and, and they should believe is that inflation over the long run is a monetary phenomenon. What the Federal Reserve do, is doing here is conflating monetary policy with the monetary condition, because that's what we're all taught. I mean, that's what we're taught to believe, that, that those two things are actually synonymous. And this gets back to what we talked about in the first part, which is the credibly promise to be irresponsible. It's the promise. The promise is that monetary policy is money in the economy. Those two things are the same thing. But what we know is that they can't make that promise more response or more credible because monetary policy is not money in the economy. That's, that's our whole goal, overriding goal here at Eurodollar University is to get people to understand the central bank is not central. And you're right, Emil. That's why this document will never work. Because until central bankers realize that monetary policy is not the same thing as money in the real economy, then they'll never figure out this inflation puzzle, which means they'll never figure out the economic puzzle, which means more cities burning, more unhappiness throughout the economy, more pressure on society's already existing fractures. All of these things work together. And it goes back to that 
what seems like a one really simple but yet stupid point. Monetary policy is not the same as the monetary system. I'm just, you just said it so well there, Jeff. Uh, let's leave it at that. That's a perfect way to wrap up that segment. And let's move on to something that is, uh, comes up very often in discussions, and that is treasury issuance, that there's too much uh, debt outstanding for the U.S. government, and therefore not enough buyers of U.S. treasuries. This week there were three big auctions, and so you wrote an article about it. Uh, let's see, it was called Too Many Treasuries, and posted on August 26th at Alhambra Investments. Not this again, too many treasuries. And it was something about that was supposed to happen the day after, the 27th. And that was a, I believe it was a $47 billion seven-year note auction. So I personally stepped out of the market and I, I don't know what happened. Did the treasuries, you know, were they all sold off? Was there any demand with, not, with me not being in the market? Jeff, tell me. Well, I mean, I think the traders said that they missed you very bad. I mean, there was an emotional, it was a highly <laughs> emotional day in trading. Yes, they missed your presence in the market. But other than that, the auction went out without, went off without a single flaw in it. So all of the auctions this week, which were massive sized, huge records, and absolutely no problems with any of them. Let, let me just tell people what the sizes were. $51 billion for a five-year note then a $50 billion for a two-year note, and then a $47 billion seven-year note. That's $150 billion. Jeff, some of us are not in the treasury market all the time, so we don't know. Is that a lot of money? I guess you just said that is a lot, and they were all picked up. But what is the, what is, uh, why are people then saying that, you know, oh, here's what they would say. They say, of course it went well, Jeff because the Federal Reserve was buying everything up. How would you respond? Yeah, I think that's, that's really the, the other argument here is that without the Fed and these massive QE, its massive QE program, that the demand for treasuries wouldn't be nearly this good and we'd have all sorts of busted auctions and everything else. And you have to, re I mean, the Fed through its, Q, its latest QE is the opposite of its not QE from last year, which means you know, from uh, October through whatever it was earlier this year, uh, March, they're not QE program. They were buying exclusively treasury bills, which I, I said was a huge mistake because the treasury bills were the part of the market the repo people needed. You know, that was the repo collateral. And I think that contributed a lot to what happened in the bottleneck in March. Since then, because, they, because the Federal Reserve was at least awake enough to realize that the market in in March had bifurcated between OTR and OFR, which is on the run, off the run, which meant treasury bills versus treasury bonds and collateral. This latest QE since March has completely avoided the bill market because those were the ones everybody actually wanted and needed and has bought exclusively the longer term stuff, the notes and the bonds that are out there. And for a while there, the, the Fed was buying you know, ungodly amounts of these, these bonds. Now, they don't buy, let's be clear. The Fed doesn't buy this stuff directly from the federal government auction. This has to transit through the primary dealers first. And so, you know, the Fed was buying up a lot of stuff that the primary dealers were already buying. And people say, well, if the, if the dealers uh, didn't have the Fed behind them, the, the, the part of the market they were going to sell to, or at least the, the non-market parts they were going to sell to under QE, they wouldn't be buying at these prices from the auction. And that's, you know, again, 
we've been hearing this too many treasuries argument, the fact that the, the primary dealers would be stuck with these things for almost three years now. And it's demonstrably false because you can look at, you know, as I do on the article, you match up the auction prices with the market prices. And what it's saying is, no, these dealers are not being stuck with treasuries. They're buying, holding, moving around many treasuries as they, you know, they're choosing this kind of activity because the market price says, well, if you can't, you know, if QE isn't there, if the Fed isn't going to be buying the bonds from you, then you can just sell it to the public because there's overwhelming demand for these things in the public. So however many, however many treasuries the tri primary dealers are holding in inventory or holding for their own purposes is exactly the number that they're choosing. And they're having no trouble whatsoever either selling them to the Fed or to the public. And it doesn't matter. I mean, that, that, I think the, the overriding point here is when you look at that chart that you're showing, um, throughout that entire period, which is a multi-year period, the thing that hasn't changed is demand for treasuries. What has changed multiple times during that period is the Fed, the Fed's activities. In the beginning part, you know, first half, the left-hand part of the chart, the Federal Reserve wasn't buying anything. In fact, they were running treasuries off of their, their book, Quantitative Tightening. In the middle part, you know, from September 2019 forward, they were buying only treasury bills. And the bonds and notes were left to the rest of the marketplace. And then from March forward, they've been buying exclusively notes. And the two and a, I think it's 2.2 trillion in treasury bills that the government sold, the private market easily absorbed every single one of those. So what we're seeing here is basically experimentation where the market is saying it doesn't matter if the Fed's involved or not. We want these things. Let me go back in time a little bit to 2007, 2008. If you uh, draw up the net position of primary dealers, net position of treasuries, what you'll see is that from the beginning of 2000 to 2007, they were net short, and that net short was expanding. But then right on August 7th or the week after or the week after that, we saw an inflection in that net short and the primary dealers began to start absorbing treasuries. They started to put more of them on their books. And that was before QE started in late 2008. So we've seen several times now when the Fed is out of the market, the primary dealers are looking for the most safest uh, instruments because there's a disorder out there, monetary disorder. Yeah, and I think, you know, Emil, part of this, the idea of too many treasuries gets into an emotional thing. Mm. I mean, look, these, these are deep, long-held principles that, you know, governments should not be reckless. They cannot mm. be reckless before they're held to account. And people believe, and believe me, I believe this too. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't take any pleasure or joy in reporting the stuff and, and, and showing you how these things actually work because I believe that too. The federal government is being insanely reckless right now, but we have to be pragmatic about the entire situation as it actually is. We can't, we can't, you know, uh, we can't import our own emotional response and believe, you know, our belief that the Fed, federal government not, needs to stop doing this. And the only way they're going to stop doing this is if the treasury market's broken. And it finally shows them the error of their ways. I think that's what's happening here. It's not analysis. It's, it's an emotional kind of, hey, I, I want my worldview to be, to be, to come back into view where we actually believe and we actually show that, you know, governments can't be reckless because that's what I actually believe. And the, the situation is actually different. We're in a special case where because the private economy doesn't grow, 
The demand for safe assets is therefore extremely high, but also because the econ private economy doesn't grow, the supply of safe assets is only from the government. So the government has been given a highly privileged position, which it is taking advantage of. And yeah, I know that that's, I mean, it sounds wrong. It sounds, you know, it's, it's against everything that we were taught to believe, everything we should believe. Governments should not be this reckless. But yet, because of the situation we're in, we have to realize that the demand for treasuries is detached from those principles. Jeff, you don't raise this in your article, but it comes up in these discussions. You've written about it before. What about the foreign sector, foreign businesses, foreign governments? They haven't been buying on net as many treasuries as they once used to. What would you say to someone who would say, the Federal Reserve, okay, maybe they're not always buying, and the primary dealers, maybe they're not really forced to, but if you were right, Jeff, then how come the foreign sector is not gobbling these up? <laughs> that's, it's a dollar shortage. I mean, that's, you know, the global dollar shortage is really about, you know, what do you do when you no longer have the dollars you need to survive in the, in the global marketplace? Because we all, I mean, global reserve currency, you have to have dollars to operate in a world economy. Unless you're going to take, you know, your local system completely out of it, go off the grid, so to speak, then you're going to have to need dollars. And if you can't source dollars plentifully or easily, you're going to have to sell any kind of dollar-denominated asset that you might have in your hands to make up for that global shortage or shortfall. And that's really all it's been, especially since 2014. The dollar shortage has gotten worse, driving the dollar exchange value higher. And governments and even private, private banking parts of each of these foreign economies has been selling treasuries. You're right. They've been selling pretty consistently for half a decade now. And what has happened to the price and the yields on these treasuries as the foreigners have been selling them? Prices have gone up. Yields have gone down because the shortage drives demand for treasuries, whether foreigners are selling them or not. The banking system wants these safe liquid instruments, as we saw in Japan, because of the dollar shortage, because of the fact that the private economy is stuck in a rut that we just talked about with the Federal Reserve strategy document. The Federal Reserve now admits that it's stuck in a rut. Because it's stuck in a rut, the economy doesn't produce the kinds of safe assets that it would need to, to uh, meet the demand for these things. And that leaves only the governments, these, you know, irresponsible drunken sailors, you know, whatever you want to call them, they're the only things that are creating safe assets. And therefore the demand for them is, go is going to be sky high as, no matter what the supply is. Jeff, I'm going to wrap up this article with a quote from you that I really like that explains what would actually be happening if there was going, if the market didn't believe in the treasury, uh, if, you know, if there really was a deficit that was going to be out of control. And that is, here's what you say, quote, if the market really believes the Fed is required in order to keep rates low, then the bond route, and you put that in all caps with four exclamation points, would be taking place right now, before right now, months ago. If Jay Powell, this guy, was truly the only thing standing between keeping rates low and the idea that demand has been only him, then the UST market would have been put in a disaster already. That's a good point. I like that. Yeah. I mean, look, if QE was the only thing holding treasury prices up now, people in the treasury market, everybody in the treasury market would be running for the hills. Because are you really going to depend upon 
the uh, Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve and the FOMC, this bureaucracy, this inept bureaucracy to keep this entire thing afloat. I mean, go back to March. <laughs> they were useless there. These people are not a help. I mean, we have to look at the central bank as it actually is, not as we want it to be. And the people in the treasury market who have their entire existence, their entire financial existence and livelihoods on the line are going to be very pragmatic about what's really going on as far as the central bank is concerned. And again, if they thought for a second that there was no demand other than the Federal Reserve, they would be out of there. They would have been out of there back in March or even before that. The idea that the Fed is holding up the market just does not, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, survive even the closest, even you know, a little bit of scrutiny. Go back to the too many treasuries thing back in 2018. The idea that, you know, how these central, these uh, commercial banks must be, for, they're forced to hold these, the stuff that they don't want. Yet, you know, the market's always there for it. They, they could sell them to the public because the prices reflect that. The prices are the facts here. And the facts are that there's demand for treasuries. And it doesn't matter how much supply of treasuries there are, demand for them will always meet it. Because the situation, the background situation behind this is, first of all, deflationary, dollar shortage, global dollar shortage. And second of all, it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. It's been a decade already. And as we talked about in the first two segments, even the Fed finally has admitted, yeah, the last decade, you know, actually does justify where treasury prices have been going all this entire time, no matter what the Fed's in the market, not in the market, out of the market, whatever. Jeff, great show, an important week, a historic one that uh, I believe we'll be referencing for a few years going forward. Most likely that it was another unsuccessful uh, pivot by the Federal Reserve, but we'll see. We'll see how it uh, plays out. We'll see how the rest of this year plays out. I had a great time. Let's do it again next week. Yeah, you, next week, let's, let's, let's more credibly promise to be irresponsible by making the same promise more credible. <laughs>